When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 60, and we're recording on December 13th. I'm Anita Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Good Hi. morning. <laughs> <laughs> Not feeling particularly. I feel like, like my brain is on like some kind of time ooh. delay. It's it's a sleepy morning. It is. It's dreary. Well, here anyway. Yeah. Um, no. Dreary. Gray. Correct. And we're like you know kind of downshifting. I don't know if that's the right term into like the holidays. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My brain is ninety five percent occupied with the Christmas presents I have forgotten to. Be. <laughs> Up until this point. <laughs> Super glad I decided to do donations for everyone this year instead of Christmas presents. That is smart. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be that mom in Target at like 11 p.m. <laughs> on Christmas Eve. Like, I guess they want a Barbie? I don't sure, know. Sure, <laughs> sure. They want this. Because that's what's left. Um, okay. Anyway. Awesome. <laughs> I hope that all of you out there are faring uh, better than I am in that regard. Okay, so moving on. So this is Get Booked. As as I said, it's a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you are new to our podcast, (laughs) you can uh, send in your reading recommendation requests to us, and we will answer them on the show. So you can email them to us at getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop your requests in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Um, The form is on every episode. If it's time-sensitive, please note it in the subject line or the first line of your request um, if you use the form so that we can answer it on time. We are responding to some people via email. If we don't have time to get to your question on the air or if we've answered it already um, in a previous show, then we will answer you that way so that you don't have to wait around. Oh, which reminds me, um, someone sent in a really great question about their 17-year-old daughter, and I responded, and the email was wrong. So um, if you sent in a question, I want to say the name was Mary. Uh, I will, I should have looked this up beforehand. Anyway, I'm just going to say, like, if you think, because I'm responding to all of the Christmas requests uh, and the holiday giving requests, like ASAP, since you have limited time to buy things. So if you sent in a request, you haven't seen a response yet, and you think you might have typed in your email address wrong, like, pop it back in there. All right. Yeah. Okay. So that's it. Oh. That's how the show works. Right. Um, and so we're going to do our first question, our first sponsor, and then we will get rolling, and that is all Jen. Okay. So our first question is from Sammy. My sister recently got interested in archery, and we've been talking about starting to take classes. I want to buy her a book for Christmas, fiction slash fantasy, with a strong female character that is an archer, but not Hunger Games. Yes, right. The animated Mm. movie Brave is what got her interested in the sport. She's 24 and an avid reader. Oh, yes, we have some picks for you. Um, (laughs) But before that, we are going to do our first sponsor, as Amanda said, which is Penguin Random House Audio. And since it tis the season for either spending a ton of time in your kitchen cooking and or uh, being on planes, trains, and automobiles to get to your family... 
you should try an audiobook to make that time go faster, slash, you know, have some background while you're making pie, slash, need to distract the kids for the five-hour drive to whoever's house. Uh, if you go to tryaudiobooks.com, you can get a full free download for your listening pleasure. So one free, which is a pretty good deal. And they have all kinds of picks, um, including... Like, they have Harry Potter on audio, and uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales, and The Princess in Black, which is a favorite that we've talked about on the show before. They have a bunch of good stuff that's, like, kid-appropriate, as well as a bunch of great stuff for grown-ups who don't have to listen with children. So you have lots of options. You should visit tryaudiobooks.com, and you can get a full free download. So thank you to them for sponsoring the show. All right, uh, I have three things for this question, <laughs> so I'm just going to say my first real quick, and then Amanda can do her first pick. This is not a book, but if your sister is not already aware of MTV's Teen Wolf, which is a show that I love, um, she should check out, especially the first few seasons, have an amazing teenage girl archer on the show, who is super badass and and near and dear to my heart. So that's not a book, but I think she, you could like get her the first season on iTunes or something. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. Okay, Amanda, mm-hmm. talk about books. Okay, um, I also want to say that I, um, The Hunger Games also got me interested in archery, and I actually did take a few classes, and it's a lot of fun. So um, I do think that that's a great idea. It made the the the, bow, the arrow makes a very satisfying thwack noise when you when you shoot it at targets. Um, so there's that information that you didn't need. Okay, so my first <laughs> pick for you is maybe a little bit obvious, but I, you know, whatever. It's Carnivals of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, obviously. Um, for those of you who maybe don't remember, like, a lot of details from stuff that you read, Susan, who is the oldest sister of the four siblings, is an archer. She's given a bow and arrow by Father Christmas, um, and then when she, like, is reigning during that period when they are the kings and queens of Narnia, um, she doesn't, like, ride off to war but with the other uh, siblings because she's, like, Susan the Gentle, and she, like, stays home and is gentle. Uh, but she does develop, like, a really big what, country? Is Narnia a country area? Whatever. Universe-wide reputation for being um, a really good shot. And Father Christmas tells her that, um, you know, like, her bow and her quiver are kind of magic and they're hard to miss uh, or they don't miss so he doesn't want her like riding off to war to shoot at random stuff because she, she will always hit her target so um yeah so she is an archer it doesn't he they don't get the gifts uh from father christmas until pretty late in the second book no um, oh right the second one yeah, the first right, one the magician's nephew yeah right um so actually the lion the witch in the wardrobe is book number two i don't you know whatever you don't have to read all the other ones uh if you're not into that. And Susan doesn't uh, play a, a very big role as the books go on because she grows up and grows out of Narnia. Um, but she is an archer, and I, you know, it's a really good time of year to read uh, Narnia stuff or watch the movies. Um, pretend I didn't say that. Okay, so that's Carnival <laughs> Narnia by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> did you Don't like the, the movies? I, I could I not. Did. I liked the first one. I liked. The first one when what's his name was the the fawn. Oh right, um, what's his name? <laughs> I know, I can't believe James McAvoy. He was a James McAvoy. Yes, yes. He was. And Tilda Swinton is like the best White Witch. Yeah. Like, she's so great. I did not like the subsequent movies after that. Um, Fair enough. But yeah, and you know Liam Neeson doing the lion. That was nice. right. Right. 
All right. It just got, it got, the, oh, they're not great. But the first one is good. I like the first one. All right. Um, my first book pick for you is <laughs> Fire by Kristen Cashore, which I am sitting here hugging my copy. It's technically the second book in the Graceling series, but it's actually a prequel, so you can read it and it's fine. Um, or not read the others, but you should because they're so good. Um, but literally everyone in the Fire is an archer. Like, there are so many bows and arrows. The people are always shooting stuff with arrows in this book, <laughs> um, including Fire, which is the name of the main character, uh, who is a woman who is really struggling with society's expectations of her and her role in her world um, because of both magical and non-magical things. Uh, and it's just an amazing book about a strong woman who also shoots bows and arrows sometimes. So I think it really fits the bill here. Um, and the whole series is so good. Uh, but yes, Fire is the one with the most archery. In fact, it even has a bow and arrow on the cover. So that is Fire by Christine Cashore. Okay, my second one um, is Grave Mercy by Robin Lefevers, which is the first book in a series, the name of which I can't remember. Oh, Who's Fair Assassin. <laughs> I was going to um, say, it's the Death Nun series, but it that's is. not what it's called. <laughs> it's Murder Nuns. It is. Like, what, what else do you want? Um, I went back and forth on this one because yeah. she, the main character shoots a crossbow, which I, I don't know if that technically qualifies as being archery, um, but it's a bow. It's in you the have to aim name it. of the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it has arrows, so... <laughs> I just, I, like, I feel like I spent way too much time debating with myself whether or not a crossbow <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, even if it doesn't, you should, I feel like, read this because it's such a, like, the, the, the conceit is so great, Assassin Nun. So anyway, the main character's name is Ismay. She's 17 years old. She's in, um, her, her, she lives with her dad, or no, her husband. She lives with her husband. She's in a, she was in, a, in an arranged marriage. Her husband is super physically abusive. And so she, um, like, finds sanctuary in a convent of St. Mortain, uh, which is one of the, like, an old-school god. This takes place, it's kind of historical fiction-y sort of fantasy. It takes place in, the, in Brittany, which, you know, is, like, a region of France now. Um, and a lot of these convents that, like, dot the countryside still follow, like, the ways of the old gods, even though Christianity is kind of taking over. Um, and so she fi- finds sanctuary in this convent, and she serves St. Mortain, who is, like, the god of death. Um, and then she discovers that these nuns don't just, you know, like sit around and pray and like bury dead people. They are also assassins who serve the God of death by, you know, killing people. Um, so she learns how to shoot a crossbow, um, and how to, you know, be stealthy and how to be an assassin essentially. Um, and then she's sent off on her first assignment to the high court of Brittany in order to spy, um, and see what's going on as, like, France is trying to take over the region and all this kind of stuff. And her possibly her first target will be this guy that she meets who she may or may not have to kill, who's, like, I, I don't see the prince? I don't remember. He's, like, really high up in the court. Um, and as she's trying to wrestle with whether or not she's going to serve her god and kill this guy if she has to, um, she discovers that, like, she's immune to poison. There's just a lot going on, and it's very um, court intrigue and adventure stuff. Um, and the romance, if that's a thing that you're into, is kind of a love-hate sort of thing. Like, they don't really get along, and I love you, I hate you, I love you. Um, so if that's, a, if that's a trope you're into, that exists here. And crossbows. And assassin nuns. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> assassin, assassin, assassin nuns, I don't know. So Grave Mercy by Robin LaFevers. Um, my second book pick for you is The Glass Arrow by Kristen Simmons, which is a future dystopia. Their pitch for it is The Handmaid's Tale meets Blood Red Road, which is, like, not inaccurate. Um, it's about a world in which women are property. I would actually call it 
I want to say it's like actually more like Hunger Games meets Bitch Planet if I was going to do a comp. Um, It's about a, yeah, a world in which people are property um, and they, women are property specifically, um, and they get traded in these auctions and, but there are like some outlying communities that are, you know, sort of uh, try, as long as you stay out of the cities, you have a shot at escaping this fate, except that then the cities send trackers into the mountains and into the villages to, like, take women to sell on the auction block, so it's not a great existence. Um, And Aya, who is the main character, is a teenager who's grown up free um, in the mountains and uh, has, like, you know, learned to survival skills and is very tough, um, And but she gets caught by the trackers and dragged into a city and is now struggling to escape from the fate of being auctioned off to a new owner um, who is then going to, like, make her pregnant and keep her, you know, imprisoned, basically. Uh, and so she is, like, trying to make escape plans, and then, of course, she meets a boy, because there's always a boy, um, who comes from, like, this, like, subset of society that's kind of on the fringes called the drivers, and she doesn't think he can talk, and ends up telling him things, and then the hijinks ensue. Um, But she is such a strong, interesting, angry character, uh, for obvious reasons. And this book does, I, like, don't know how to say this without spoiling it, This book does something that I don't think is particularly usual for dystopias, um, in that it's a personal story and not a story of, like, big societal political upheaval. Like, it's about Aya. It's not about, like, the whole society, if that is vague enough for you. (laughs) Um, Anyway, and she does, there is, like, there's a fable in the uh, story that is the sort of the Glass Arrow title comes from. Um, And there, she's, like fluent in weapons, both makeshift and, like, bows and arrows. So there's a there's a fair amount of that kind of stuff in there, too. Um, so archery isn't, like, a main part of it, but it is a part of it, and it is a story that, uh, if you like strong female characters, I think you will enjoy. So that is The Glass Arrow by Kristen Simmons. Okay, question two. This is from Danielle. She says, This year for Christmas, I'm compiling a list of books for friends and family as a personalized gift. Uh, the recommendations have come pretty easily. But I have a friend whose list is missing something. I have books that are okay, but I feel like there's a perfect one that's eluded me. She's really gotten into modern witchcraft. We bonded over a love of charms, which she calls, quote, real adult fiction and has a steampunk slash goth visual aesthetic. Other books I'm recommending for her are Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer and Station Eleven. Books she's recommended to me are Cashiel's Dart and Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. Okay, um... First, I want to say, but I'm not going to, like, get into that she needs to read Sabriel because it is all of her aesthetic a million times times a thousand. But I'm not going to talk about it because I have a rule that if I've recommended a book more than three times on the show that I'm not allowed to do it anymore. Um, And I've recommended Sabriel a million times. So, Sabriel. Anyway, um, so my first actual selection is The Last Werewolf by Glenn Duncan, which is so adult fiction that it might be a little too much, but has what I think is a very charmed sort of kind of buffy that sort of aesthetic. Um, As the title would imply, it's about the last werewolf. His name is Jake. He is over 200 years old. It takes place in modern, you know, modern times like now. Um, And he has just found out that the only other existing werewolf that he knew of is dead. So now he is the last of his species. Um, So he spent 200 years killing people and whatever, reading books because he's bored essentially. And now that he's by himself, um, he's depressed. So he's, he's, contemplating ending his life even though that would mean the termination of you know a legend and a myth that is thousands of years old um 
Jake is such a, <laughs> like, a, he's a hard character to read because he's a smartass, and he's, like, he's very, he's 200 years old, so he's read pretty much every book. The book is stuffed full of, like, allusions, literary allusions. I think the first chapter starts with the words, reader, I ate him, which is, is like, an obvious thing from Jane Eyre. Anyway, um, he's very nihilistic um, and sarcastic. The book is very, very violent and has lots of sex, and sometimes those things are happening at, at the same time. So if that's the thing you would rather avoid, there you go. Um, and so as he's, like, having this existential crisis of realizing that he's alone and he doesn't know what he wants to do with himself, if he wants to continue living at all, um, he realizes that he's being pursued by two different groups. One is, like, a, a, a like a Blackwater-style private security firm that's after him for, like, experimentation purposes, and then he's also being pursued by, like, a group of vampires for their own reasons. So, yeah. <laughs> so vampire, I, I, like, would like to reiterate super violent but it's very gothy and the the books themselves it's actually a trilogy um and the the books themselves are beautiful like they're black if you can find first editions the 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 edges of the pages are like blood red which i think would be great for somebody who's into like that gothy kind of steampunky look um and the the front is like gilded they're very nice and i think uh very appropriate for someone with her taste so that's the last werewolf by glenn duncan all right, my first pick for her is, she may have already hit it because it's got witches in the title, but just in case, um, A Discovery <laughs> of Witches by Deborah Harkness is the first book in the All Souls trilogy, and it is like the go-to book for people who love the Night Circus, like all of my friends who who went from the Night Circus to this were like, ah, oh, it's the perfect companion, so... And it's about a young scholar named Diana Bishop who is studying in Oxford's Bodleian Library, and she accidentally, like, gets an, a bewitched manuscript, and she's descended from witches, but she doesn't want anything to do with sorcery, um, but then, like, obviously she doesn't get a choice, um, and there's vampires, and there's obviously modern-day witches, and there's all kinds of uh, supernatural shenanigans, uh, and um, it's, you know, got a lot of, like, Anne Riceiness to it, which is, you know, that, like, super natural gothy thing uh so i think and it's a trilogy so there's multiple so she can enjoy that because obviously she's a trilogy lover since she's a kushiel's dart fan um and so yeah i think that is this would answer if she hasn't already picked them up so that is a discovery of witches by deborah harkness okay um my second one i have can't find my notes for oh it's a Hello. Read a spreadsheet, Amanda. It's American Gods by Neil Gaiman. I went back and forth. I knew I wanted to do a Neil Gaiman title for her, but I didn't. I couldn't pick which one. Uh, I went back and forth between this one and Stardust, because Star, Stardust, I think, has that kind of Night circus feel, um, that, like, kind of Victorian fantasy mm-hmm, kind of stuff mm-hmm. going on. Um, but I went with American Gods because it's a little more gothy and a little bit, uh, a little bit like, kind of harder, I think, and it has more of that charmed sort of thing going on. Anyway, so uh, American Gods um, is modern, modern, mythological tale, urban fantasy, about a a guy named Shadow who's just gotten out of jail, and he wants to go home to be with his wife, but a few days before he gets out of jail, uh, his wife and his best friend are killed in an accident, and he starts kind of just bouncing around trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life, and he meets a stranger named Mr. Wednesday, who hires him to be like an errand boy, bodyguard, that kind of thing. Um, And so he like goes on this kind of road trip with Mr. Wednesday across America, and meets so many bizarre people who turn out to be, like, the embodiment of old gods living in America. Um, they like, existing, like, just under the surface of normal American life. So they, um, they live or die based on the amount of belief that exists in uh, America at the time uh, in them as gods. They fight with each other. There's, like, a big climactic 
like war that happens in a small American town that's very idyllic. Um, and so, like, Shadow seems like the main character, and you're following him as he goes on this adventure, but in reality, like, he's just the thing through which we are seeing Neil Gaiman's, uh, like, kind of treaties on the mythology of America, which is ballsy coming from a dude from Britain. <laughs> he's written this, like, very in-depth fantasy novel about the system of American belief and how there is no such thing as an American and how we all came from somewhere else, almost all of us, and brought with us um, our own, like, old gods and our own old ideas and mythologies and how those have shaped uh, the country as it is now and what happens to those beliefs as we start worshipping other things like, you know, consumerism and reality TV and stuff like that. So um, I'm making it sound like sort of academic. It is not academic at all. It's a like adventure, weird fantasy novel page turner. And it's, it's a lot of fun and really interesting to see how Neil Gaiman interprets really, really old um, like pagan mythologies into like making a god an undertaker or like a guy who works at the deli, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, and he's so good at that kind of stuff. Neil Gaiman is so good at weaving the weird into uh, what we think is normal. So that's American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which I think is going to be a TV series or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ricky uh, Whittle, yeah. who was one of my favorites from uh, The 100, is going to play Shadow, and I'm pretty oh, jazzed about it. Awesome. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm here for it. Okay, so go, yeah, go read it. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, my second pick. I know you said... Real adult fiction, quote-unquote, whatever that means. Um, uh, but I'm going to recommend a YA to you because it's so perfect. Um, it really is. It really is. It's Labyrinth Lost by Zaretta Cordova, which is the first in the Brooklyn Brujas series, and it is all about modern witchcraft in Brooklyn. Uh, the main character, Alex, is a bruja, which is, a, like, she's a witch, um, and she hates magic not into it. She doesn't want any part of it. Um, and her whole family is like involved in this. And so she makes a wish and then everything goes horribly, horribly wrong. Um, and so she has to go on this sort of journey to restore the world to rights. Um, and so, you know, what Cordova is doing is like fusing this sort of Taking the, the supernatural traditions of Latin America, which is, you know, she was born in Ecuador, so this is part of her heritage, um, and, you know, making it into, like, a modern-day fantasy adventure. Um, and she was at uh, Book Riot Live, and one of the things she said on a panel about, like, finding her voice as a writer was that, you know, writing teachers kept telling her to, like, write from her personal, you know, immigrant experience, and she kept being like, but what if they were all witches? <laughs> um, so, which I really appreciate. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a great um, start to a, what's going to be an awesome series and she's super smart and interesting and everybody should read it so that's Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova okay let's see the next question is me uh, from Anna I'd like to get my brother a few books for Christmas this year he's a journalist and reads mostly nonfiction, but is open to fiction his favorite nonfiction author is Eric Larson and his favorite favorite fiction author is Michael Crichton. Recent favorites of his include Evicted by Matthew Desmond, Get Aside by Jill Leovi. I've never said that out loud before, Seabiscuit by Lauren Hillebrand, and The Run of His Life by Jeffrey Tubin. Okay, let's see. Why don't you go first, Amanda? Okay, um, the first one I picked was They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry. I picked this because, um, your brother seems to be into nonfiction about social justice issues, like with Evicted and all that. Um, also, Wesley Lowry is a journalist also uh, in a... Uh, wow. English. Wesley Lowry is also a journalist, 
as your brother is, so I thought that might be an interesting parallel. Um, Wes works for the Washington Post and was on the ground in Ferguson um, for those protests and was kind of sent across the country after that to cover subsequent shootings of unarmed black people by the police. And so he has written this book, They Can't Kill Us All, uh, about that experience. So it's about Ferguson. He covers Baltimore, um, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, uh, and pretty much all of the shootings that happened last year that were big news stories that he covered. Um, So it's both a look at the epidemic of police violence against unarmed black people in America, and it's also sort of memoirish. So he's talking about how his career was sort of made, uh, which is an unfortunate term, but you know what I mean, uh, covering these events and how his experience in Ferguson was so singular and, like, defined what he wanted to do with the rest of his career as a journalist, especially since he himself was arrested. Um, and if you've heard of him, that's probably, you know, what you've heard about um, about Wes Lowry himself. And so he, he looks, uh, at, there's a really interesting perspective that he's taking here of um, the history of the journalism of, like, the Black Lives Matters movement, not necessarily the history of the movement, but, like, who covered what when, who was the first to interview the founders, like, where the founders came from, how social media brought all these people together. So it's both about the violence itself and also about the activist response that happened um, and the way in which it was covered by the press. So that's They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and A New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement by Wesley Lowry. My first pick is also, I guess, social justice nonfiction, if that's a thing. Um, it, is, it is. We just made it. One. We, yeah. We've decided. It's Just Mercy <laughs> by Brian Stevenson, uh, which is about the justice system, um, and it's by a lawyer. Uh, he f- was um, a you know, like young and up-and-coming lawyer and founded the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a practice de- dedicated to defending, like, you know, the poor and wrongly condemned and women and children uh, who are trapped in the justice, criminal justice system. Um, and he, uh, like, got drawn into, obviously, a lot of really intense things through founding um, and practicing with this initiative. Uh, so it's kind of a, it is a little bit memoir. It's about his own uh, journey in law and um, with the people he's trying to help. Um, it's also a really intense look at the criminal justice system and the ways in which we're failing uh, some of the people who get caught up in it. And uh, really intense, but like so is Evicted. So I think this is you know going to fit right in there. And it was one of the most notable books of the past year and a half, I want to say. I can't believe it was 2014. It feels like so much more recent than that to me. But anyway, if he hasn't picked it up yet, I think Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson would be a great fit. Okay, my second one is Contact by Carl Sagan, which I picked because you said he really likes Michael Crichton, and so I was going for that, like, techno, hard science, sci-fi kind of feel, and Contact is so great. Carl Sagan, as I'm sure you know, is uh, really, or was, a really famous um, astrophysicist, is that the right? Astronomer? I think Science, he was, star science. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> star science. Uh, He was like the generation before mine's Neil deGrasse Tyson, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Uh, Anyway, so I think, I'm pretty sure this is his only novel. He wrote a lot of nonfiction, um, like popular science kind of stuff to help make astrophysics comprehensible to people who are not astrophysicists, which I appreciate. Um, Anyway, so you might have seen the movie. It's got uh, Jodie Foster in it, but the, the novel is about a woman who is a... Uh, or was a science prodigy as a child. She's grown up, and now she's working for uh, SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence um, organization. Uh, I think it's 
out of NASA or it's part of the government or, or something to that effect. Anyway, so she's the director of something called Project Argus, which is a radio telescope institute. They're searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, among other science stuff that they do um, using the, the telescope array. So one day they get a message from the Vega system, which is, you know, several light years away. It seems like it's just prime numbers, but then the scientists um, break it down and realize that it's actually, like, there's messages hidden within the, the prime numbers transmission, and it's a, it's a set of blueprints for building what looks like a spaceship, like a, a weird structure with a bunch of seats in it. Um, and so then the, the novel continues as the world governments come together or try to come together and, and often fail to work together to build this thing to send humanity out into space to go searching for the, the civilization that sent this message. Um, so that's, you know, kind of the plot. In reality, this is an homage to Carl Sagan's view of agnosticism. Um, he's using it. He uses Ellie a lot as a mouthpiece um, for criticizing or critiquing both fundamental religious groups and also fundamentalist atheism, which is interesting from a scientist, I think. Um, but it's really fast-paced. The science is really fascinating, like how Michael Crichton can write the most intricate and strange and seemingly obscure science stuff and make it really interesting. Um, Carl Sagan did the same thing with, you know, like telescope arrays, which I know nothing about, and like radio transmissions, also know nothing about that. Um, and you could feel like how much he really loved the topic in the book, which is nice. Um, so yeah, so that's Contact by Carl Sagan. Uh, my second pick is also a sci-fi uh, pick for you. It is the Old Man's War series by John Scalzi, which is kind of like what I imagine if Michael Crichton had had like a bigger sense of humor, um, what he might have <laughs> written. I mean, Michael Crichton is great, but like he's not exactly yeah. funny. Um, yeah. Like he's got some good one-liners here and there, but anyway... John Scalzi is very funny, um, and he is a writer of hard sci-fi, and the Old Man's War series is, like, I don't know, seven or eight books long by this point. It's, it's, there's a lot of them, so if he likes them, it's a good uh, entry to the series. Um, and in the first book, you meet a man who is about to go off to war, except the twist is that he's, like, a retiree, um, and what happens is you join the army when you're, like, 75, and you... All you know is that they're somehow going to make you fit for service. Like, you don't know how or what they're going to do to you. You just know that it's going to work. And then you're going to go into space and serve a term. And it's like a second chance at life. Like, you're, if you're, like, all done with Earth, this is the thing that you do next. Um, and so, in the meantime, humanity is embroiled in this, like, intergalactic war. They've made contact with several alien nations, species, planets, how, what have you, governments. Um... And uh, there are people who are, like, alien diplomats. And um, and then there's, you know, the armed forces. And then there's all of this political stuff going on. And Earth has kind of been kept in this bubble of, like, not knowing exactly what's happening out there. Um, so the, John Perry, who's the main character in Old Man's War, is, like, your entree into, like, what is going on in outer space uh, for humanity. And some of it is not so great. Um, but Scali has a great sense of humor. Like I said, uh, the book is really enjoyable um and i loved the whole series I, i've been following it since it first started coming out um and i just think it's it's like it's just really fun and especially right now like in between all of the heavy sometimes it's nice to have a little fun sciencey getaway so uh and it, it, it employs both like space travel stuff and also you know genetic engineering and like advanced techniques that don't seem necessarily so far off so that is old man's war by john scalzi uh, oh, it's you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, question four. 
This is from Bevan, who says, I'm looking for holiday gift bricks for my husband. He's interested in philosophy, art, and aesthetics, and has enjoyed the writings of people like Amy Dillard, Elaine Badeau, and Roland Barthes, to name a few. He's more interested in thoughtful, meditative writing like Dillard than in fiction or narrative. He has a lot of books, so while I'm open to any ideas you have, something published more recently that he might, excuse me, might not yet have heard of uh, might give me a better chance at surprising him. Okay, so my first one was published uh, last year. It's by Marilyn Robinson. It's called The Givenness of Things. It's a collection, excuse me, a collection of essays. Um, a lot of them are about religion and theology and philosophy. It's um, like a, if you read the synopsis, the synopsis makes it sound like it's about like the culture wars and our um, kind of cultural of pessimism and uh, how that's not exactly necessary. Anyway, so it's, it seems like it's a lot about just a critique of modern culture and how we need to have more faith in ourselves as people based on our history and our beliefs. However, it's really about the Reformation. <laughs> like, it's, it is a cultural critique. She does talk a lot about modern politics, the, the political landscape as it exists right now, the theological and philosophical landscape as it exists right now. Um, but it's almost all of them are within the framework of the Reformation. Like, and she talks a lot about um, Calvin and John Locke and Shakespeare. Like, she's, she's going way back a ways and using all those thinkers to um, frame her thoughts about our culture right now. And I feel like since the election and this whole, the election process of the last year has caused a big shift in our, in our cultural conversation, um, wherein like facts no longer matter and, and, and it's much more divisive and that sort of thing. But, uh, and even though this was written a year before all of that really started, it still feels very relevant. Like the things that she's talking about, especially if you already have a a philosophy background, which obviously your husband does. So that's the givenness of things by Marilyn Robinson. Terry Tempest Williams is always my go-to recommendation for people who love Annie Dillard because she writes so beautifully about nature and also the internal life of the mind, uh, which is what Dillard does and is so compelling. Uh, So I was trying to figure out which book, like I kept, like just literally as Amanda was talking, I was retyping my answer to this (laughs) question. Um, So I'm going to recommend two. Uh, I'm trying to make them more recent for you. Um, My first pick for this was Finding Beauty in a Broken Land, which is a sort of prose poem of a book where she's weaving together a bunch of different themes, including like endangered prairie dogs and like Rwanda and then mosaic art um, all into one whole that comes together in a really kind of amazing and lovely way. Uh, and so, um, but it came out in 2008. So I like, I really think this is a great pick for him, but if it, if that feels too late for you, you're afraid you might already have it. She's got a brand new book that came out this year called The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks, where, I mean, obviously she's a huge advocate for environmentalism and um, the National Park Service. And so she uh, goes amongst all of these different, she writes about all of these different parks uh, that, you know, you can go to. Um, And so it's like kind of a travel guide, but not really because it's Terry Tempest Williams. So it's actually like a meditation on our relationship to nature, plus beautiful photographs. So I think this is like it's it's a it's a beautiful book, um, but B it might be it's very new. So he probably doesn't already have it unless he's a huge Terry Tempest Williams fans. In which case, like two thumbs up for him. Uh, so so the author is Terry Tempest Williams, and the books are either Finding Beauty in a Broken World or The Hour of Land. Okay, the second one that I went with is Republic of Imagination by Azar Nafisi, and this 
came out uh, 2014, so it's still pretty new. Um, and it's not like a philosophy book, so it might he might not have heard of it yet, but it kind of is. So Azar Nafisi you probably have heard of because she wrote Reading Lolita in Tehran, which was a huge bestseller about her experience of teaching the classics of the Western canon to her students during the Iranian Revolution. Um, and so this one does not take place in Iran. It takes place uh, in the U.S. And it's essentially the, the, um, the subtitle is America in Three Books. And she's taking three works of fiction that she thinks are, have defined American culture and American society and the American experiment and doing both a literary critique. So there's, you know, like actual literary criticism of the three books um, and also putting them into the context of the development of American culture. Um, so the three books that she picks are Huck Finn, um, Babbitt, and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I, there's a lot to pick apart there, uh, whether or not those are the three defining books of the American mad- imagination. First of all, I agree with the first and the second, Babbitt, I think is weird. Also, why is there nothing? Anyway, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to argue with Azar Nafisi right now. Um, she does in the epilogue talk a lot about James Baldwin, which I appreciated. Um, and so in that framework of how important fiction is, she came up with the idea for this book when she was at a book signing and someone said to her, it's something to the effect of like, it's unfortunate that Americans don't appreciate books anymore or Americans don't appreciate literature anymore. And she so deeply disagreed with that, that she went and wrote this book about how not only do Americans appreciate fiction, um, but it actually has defined who we are a lot of the time. Um, So it is about that and about the American imagination. And I'm realizing now that this is the second book that I've picked on the show that's about, like, the the thought behind the American experiment from someone who was not born here, which I think is I, I apparently a thing I enjoy. I, I, I realize right this second. Um, but, yeah, it's nice. And she, she goes on a lot of, like, really entertaining tangents in this book. Like, there's... Um, like a whole chapter about Common Core, and there's a right, bunch about like right. trigger warnings mm-hmm. that I like fundamentally disagreed with mm-hmm. everything she said about it. Um, but it's still, I mean, it, that does not mean that it's not a great book and that you shouldn't read it just because I disagreed with it. I still enjoyed it and I, I appreciated a lot of what she had to say. Um, so that's The Republic of Imagination America in Three Books by Azarna Fisi. All right. My second pick is old. <laughs> but I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm betting that he doesn't have it yet. Uh, it's an essay collection by Wendell Berry called What Are people for. Uh, It's got 22 essays um, about a bunch of different things. Um, Some of them are about economics, and some of them are about, like, his, like, working relationship with his wife, who is sort of his writing assistant. And then some of them are about, like, him, you know, digging up the stump on his land. And it's (laughs) it's got a lot of um, range to it. Um, But Barry's a deeply thoughtful person, and he comes back over and over again to a few core uh, issues, among them our relationship to the land. Um, And he is also a Christian, but in a very... Like, how do I want to say this? He's not a conservative Christian. Um, open-minded? Yeah, Maybe. open-minded is the right word. Uh, and he, but he, like, he is guided by his spirituality and faith, but in a very thoughtful and thought-provoking kind of way. Um, I'm not religious myself, but it was very interesting to read how he merged his, you know, philosophical inclinations with his faith. Um, and he's just, like, a really smart, interesting person. Um, he's written a ton of stuff. Uh, and, I, and some of them are, like, really really beautiful, um, I could have sworn there was, like, a gift book out recently, too, but anyway, if you're looking for that, like, Annie Dillard, like, essay feel, uh, What Are People For is the one to start with, so, um, yes, so that is Wendell Berry, uh, and he's just great, I love him, okay. I always feel like Wendell Berry is, like, if Ron Swanson were slightly more 
like religious yes Wendell Berry oh my would gosh be who... that's exactly correct <laughs> that is like yes that is right that's then right then he would be Wendell Berry he would be Wendell Berry it's basically Ron Swanson's like yeah. deep thoughts with Ron Swanson is not that is what this is that's also our show I would, title <laughs> I would watch that show right? so fast oh my gosh correct okay correct. before we move on to our next question we're going to do our second sponsor which is Comic Bento, which is the original graphic novel subscription box service. Um, I'm sure you've seen subscription box services are everywhere. Uh, there's like Stitch Fix for your clothes. There's that one for makeup, the name of which I can't remember. Um, Birch Box. Wait, is that right? Oh, well, doesn't matter. Um, Bark Box is a new one that I recently saw, which is like a subscription <laughs> service for your dog. You could say send you toys and treats and stuff. I thought that was neat. Anyway, so Comic Bento is the first graphic novel subscription box. Every month, they send you a box with $60 to $80 worth of graphic novels, ships to your door. There's a different theme every month, um, and they try to mix it up, and they include, like, classics, hidden gems, new releases. It's all very carefully curated. So whether you're a longtime comics reader or you're completely new to the format, um, there's something in every box for you. So you can go to comicbento.com to subscribe. If you use the offer code RIOT15, one word, no spaces, RIOT15, you'll get 15% off your subscription. Um, This month, in December, their theme is Mighty... um, exclamation point I there's not really an exclamation point I put one there because of comics and so they're featuring it's like a, um, a publisher spotlight so they're spotlighting Marvel comics there's going to be two titles from Marvel and two more from their publishing peers that fit that theme of mighty woo so I'm thinking I don't know superheroes maybe that makes I'm, I'm like making this fist pump into the air right now that no one can see <laughs> yeah um, so one is brand new, one of the Marvel titles in the box is new, and one is a classic, um, and if you are a fan of this, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you've been really into any of the, the, the new, like, Marvel movies that they've been making, then this is definitely a thing that you'll like. There's also a video game title in the box. So it's a great gift for someone who's into Marvel movies or comics in your life, or, you know, a gift to yourself. So go to comicbento.com and use the offer code Riot15 and save 15%. I might... Right, and thank you for sponsoring the show. I might be dating myself, but the thing that I cannot help but think whenever somebody says, Mighty is the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> it's like oh. the first thing that comes yes. to my mind. Flying V. Anyway, I would take a comic about that is what I'm saying. Okay, all right. So the next question is from Samantha. Uh, like a lot of people, the holidays are a rough time for me. Every year when things get overwhelming and or hard, my refuge is books. Uh, I can't seem to find anything to read. I've been looking for a world to get lost in. I'm thinking fantasy or steampunk, preferably a series that doesn't have to be. Uh, so far, my DNF list includes Game of Thrones, the Mistborn trilogy, Lord of the Rings, and the Farseer trilogy. Some things in this vein that I have loved are Harry Potter, His Dark Materials, The Night Circus, King Hitler Chronicles, and Angel Maker. Uh, recent favorite is A Gentleman in a- Moscow by Amor Tolls. Uh, really, I'm open to anything engaging and escapist you can give me. I feel you. I feel you. Uh, so my first pick for you, I picked because of your love for Angel Maker, which I share. Um, and this book has some of the same madcap feel to it that I love from Nick Harkaway. It is The Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge by Paul Kruger. And it is about a... Uh, excuse me, a young woman named Bailey Chen who has just graduated from college and, like, is super smart and super motivated and can't find a job. Uh, So she's moved back in with her parents. She's working as a bar back at her, like, high school friend's bar. And she's, like, desperately trying to network her way into a, you know, a, like, a quote-unquote actual job Um, when she suddenly realizes through a series of events that 
magic is real, that demons are real, and that her high school friend is part of an organization of bartenders who fight them with magic drinks. And (laughs) so, you know, that's a lot to take in. (laughs) And so Bailey becomes, like, part of this cadre of magical bartenders. And the book is really fun. Um, It has cocktail recipes in it. So, like, if you would like to, like, make yourself a nightcap as you read, like, it's got these, you know, recipes that you can... um, um, do. And there's a book inside the book, which is always a trip that I love. Um, it's like the magical bartender's like guide to mixology, and you have to use a special kind of uh, booze. It's like only manufactured by this one thing, and you can't get it otherwise. And I don't know, there's like a lot of fun world-building-y stuff. Um, I just really enjoyed it. It takes place in Chicago, which you don't often get Chicago urban fantasy, which I guess is what this is. Uh, it's just a super enjoyable, really fun read. Uh, so I definitely, it's not a series, but I think it will distract you, which is what you're looking for. So Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge by Paul Kruger. Okay, the first uh, one that I picked for you is a series that I started reading immediately after the election in order to process my feels, and I'm on the fourth one, and I just love it so much. And it's the Lioness Rising series by Tamara Yay. Pierce. Um, which I picked up because uh, because of Jen, because she recommended it on the show. Yes! Oh my god, that makes me so happy. (laughs) See, I sit here with this, like, piece of paper on my computer every time we do this show, and I, like, write on stuff that sounds good to me, and it's, like, it's not helping. Uh, My DNF list doesn't help. Uh, Anyway, so since you liked Harry Potter and uh, seem to have, uh, are open to YA sort of things, I thought this would be a good one. So, the first book starts when she's super young. The main character, Alana, is, like, eight, I think, eight or ten. Um, and it's in a, you know, like a medievalish kind of fantasy universe. She's got a twin brother. He is supposed to be sent off to be a knight, uh, to be trained to be a knight. She is supposed to be sent off to, you know, go to a convent and learn how to get married, basically. And neither of them want to do that. Tom wants to be a sorcerer. She wants to be a knight. Um, and so they switch places. She cuts all her hair off. She pretends to be a boy, goes off to the castle, um, in the, like the capital of this, you know, land to train to be a knight. And the first book is like her adventures in that thing like how does she make friends how does she hide the fact that she's a girl from all of these people throughout her training which takes place over I think she graduates at the end when she's like 16 so she has like 10 years that she has to hide the fact that she's a girl the book like very frankly deals with how she handles hitting puberty which is something that's not really ever discussed in young adult uh, novels that are not frequently at least to my mind Um, and then you also watch her like how, how is she supposed to fight these boys who are, of course, larger than her um, in order to, you know, not die, first of all, and not be, like, constantly injured for the whole time that she's training, but also, like, to be a success. She really wants to be actually good at this. Um, and so you are here with her as she does all of those things. And as she succeeds and fails, depending on what she's doing, she also, like, goes on adventures and fights big baddies and, um, like, makes becomes best friends with the, the, like, king of the thieves in the city, who's, like, an awesome character. And then every book in the series is a little bit later in her life. So you're following her, really, from childhood on into her adulthood. I'm on the fourth book in the quartet, and she's probably in her uh, mid-20s at this point. Um, there's a little bit of romance, but the, I love the way Tamara Pierce handles romance in this, mm-hmm. in that Alana doesn't want to get married. She doesn't necessarily want children. She wants to do what she wants to do, not be tied down and be a knight and like go off and have great adventures. And she doesn't let men stop her from doing that, even if she has feelings for them and she doesn't let them um, 
tell her that she needs to be more feminine or that she needs to focus on one thing or another. Like, she just does what she wants to do. And sometimes that includes men and sometimes it doesn't. And it's just very, like, nice and refreshing. Um, So the first book is called Alana, The First Adventure, and the series is called Song of the Lioness. It's by Tamara Pierce. You know, I just realized that George and Alana are my first OTP. (laughs) Oh, I love Like, just now, it occurred to me. (laughs) I keep waiting to, like, not hate Jonathan, and it keeps oh, just not Oh, I know. Happening. It's hard. Oh, and I'm Jonathan. on the fourth book, and I feel like I'm just never gonna. <laughs> Did you meet, is his name Liam? The, yes. 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 The warrior bro. The dragon of the shame. I like, he is Jason Momoa in my head now. Um, Ooh. Anyway, okay, sorry, yeah. sorry, sidetrack. Um, so. Always sidetracked by Jason oh, Momoa. Forever. Um, <laughs> so my second pick for you is a series And I read this series, I got really sick, like, a bunch of times earlier this year, because I have a new niece, and babies are germ factories, it turns out. Um, And one of the times that I was sick, I was just, like, lying in bed and couldn't move and was just miserable. And I read basically this whole series, like, on my phone lying in bed. Uh, So I think it will be a good distraction for you, because it was for me. And it's called The Black Magician Series by Trudy Canavan. And the first book is called Magician's Guild. I just want to specify that black magician just means black robes. Like, it is pretty straightforward, like, high fantasy. Um, and uh, there's... But the, the thing that's cool about the series is that it's about, you know, the city of... Um, I guess it's called Imardin. And the, every year the magicians, like, kind of, like, kick out the undesirables. Um, but this one year, there's this girl who's, like, a very young girl who chucks a stone at them and, like, penetrates their magic shield, which isn't supposed to be possible. Uh, and so this girl who's on the fringe of society, she's poor, she's an outcast, apparently, like, reveals herself to have magical powers and is taken in by this head mage. And it, like, totally upends everything that they think they know about how magic works and who has magic and who should be allowed to have magic. Um, and so she, uh, she like kind of upsets the system, which is always a fun thing to read about. Um, and I really got to love the characters and the story arc is very, like it moves nice and smoothly. There's not like huge digressions like you get sometimes with high fantasy. Um, I just, I thought it was really super enjoyable. So that is the Black Magician trilogy. First book is The Magician's Guild and it's by Trudy Canavan. Okay. Um, my second one I picked because you said that you liked Harry Potter and then you also said you liked a gentleman in Moscow so I kind of squished them together and got the Grisha trilogy by Lee Bardugo very nice very nice (laughs) when I like landed upon this in my brain I was like oh genius I did it (laughs) I did the thing so the first book in the series is called Shadow and Bone and this is really high fantasy and it takes place in a universe that is not real except it's totally based on Russia like Victorian era, kind of, I guess, uh, Russian society. So the main character's name is Alina. She is an orphan and hasn't ever really been good at anything in her life. She's very normal and plain or whatever. She joins the military with her best friend, who is a boy named something I can't forget. Mal? Matt? Starts with an M. I don't remember. Um, And they are in the army, and and when the book opens, they're about to cross the Fold, which is, this is a magical land, so uh, the Fold is this area, this, like, swath of darkness, like, as in nighttime darkness, no matter what time of day it is, that separates um, two areas of the nation where she lives, and you have to cross the Fold to get to the other part of the country. Uh, And the problem is that within the Fold exists a bunch of monsters who like to eat human flesh and are drawn to light. Um, So or no, no, aren't drawn to light, are repelled by light, but it's always dark in there. And so crossing the fold is always a very treacherous um, 
thing. So you, you like open right in the middle of all of this action. So they get on this, you know, sand ship thingy and they're crossing the fold and the monsters attack. And Alina really thinks like, this is where I die. And then she sees one of the monsters attacking her friends or attacking her best friend. And then like out of her bursts this ray of light and the light repels the monsters and she basically saves the day. So it turns out she's like the Sunbringer, like this huge epic savior that the people have been waiting for uh, to come lead the people or whatever. And so she's, you know, wrenched out of the army and taken to the Darkling, who is the leader of uh, like, kind of like a prince, I guess, or the king, whatever. Um, no, because they have, a, they have a, like, actual royal family. He's like the, um, the head of their, what do you call it, uh, magical order. Uh, and so she's, like, taken to him so that he can test her. And, of course, the powers are, are opposite. He brings darkness, she brings light. So there's... Um, an obvious kind of romantic thing that happens there. And she has to figure out her like goal here is to both adjust to her new life, living within um, the court and all of these magic cast systems kind of. Um, And then she also has to figure out how to destroy the fold because that's what like the purpose of her power is. Right. Uh, And where it came from in the first place. And so it is a trilogy. And um, then there are more books that exist kind of in the same universe that aren't part of this trilogy. But anyway, so if you really like it, you can keep going. Um, the Darkling is my fave, and I do ship them real hard. I uh, just, I'm going to say it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, love him. This has turned um, into our fantasy ships. That's fine. <laughs> I know! It's totally fine. Uh, but, yeah, so it's got that, you know, kind of Moscowish. It's very, very Russian. It's all based on a lot of, like, Russian... Um, you know, it's not. It doesn't strike me as Victorian. It more strikes me as like, uh, uh, oh gosh, what is her name? What's that? Who's that princess who disappeared, like right before the Anastasia in Russia? Anastasia. Yes, like that kind of era. It feels very Anastasia to me, like which I guess is Edwardian, but that wasn't a thing that happened. I can in never remember um, which is which. Yeah. Um, so it's got a really cool aesthetic, and it's also very fast paced. And Alina is a really interesting character who's dealing with a lot of stuff. So it's Shadow and Bone. It's the first book in the Grisha trilogy by Lee Bardugo. Okay. So question six is from Bianca. She says, This is a Christmas request. I'm looking for a book for my dad, preferably historical fiction that takes place during World War II. He loved All the Light We Cannot See and is currently loving the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Anything like those would be great. Okay. You go. Okay. Uh, so I have three. I'm going to try to be quick. My first one is a book that I adored when it came out in 2008, and, like, I am relatively convinced that no one else has read this book, um, but I loved it. It's about, uh, Italy in 1943, uh, during the Nazi invasion, and there is a woman who is a former opera singer who works at a restaurant, um, and, like, now she, like, entertains the diners with her opera singing, um, but now, like, the restaurant has been seized by the Nazis, and there's, like, a resistance uh, squad of waiters and local tradesmen, which is led by the main character, Lucia's son, Um, and then he disappears. And so she goes on this pretty epic journey across Italy trying to find him. And, like, she's not a young woman. Like, she's got a grown son. Like, you don't often get middle-aged heroines during wartime novels. Like, that's not a thing that I experience very often. And the way this book is written, it's so beautiful. It's so atmospheric. And it's also, I mean, really deeply moving and sad because it's about World War II. Um, And I just, I haven't read that many that are set in, like, Italy and this kind of setting. Uh, So I just, I thought it was amazing. Uh, It's And you really, like, if you 
it's like a side note, but if you enjoyed Queen of the Night, this is another one that will scratch that opera itch while also being an amazingly lush historical novel. So that is Lambrusco by Ellen Cooney. Okay, my first pick is The English English Patient by Michael (laughs) Andace. I don't know what just happened. Um, This takes place in Italy in a old and abandoned, uh, like, villa at the end of the war. Um, There are four main characters. Uh, The two that you're probably most interested in are Hannah, who's a nurse, and an unnamed English patient who has been burned pretty much beyond recognition and can't be moved um, and can't really leave his bed. So Hannah is caring for him. Um, and then there's also a thief named Caravaggio who turns out to be kind of connected to Hannah through family in some weird way who appears at the villa. And there's also um, a sapper, like a, like a bomb expert named, named Kip who wanders in eventually. Um, and Hannah is caring for the unnamed English patient because she has, like, you know, the sense of duty. She can't leave him there. But the war is coming to an end and they're out of food Um, and she has to, like, spend a lot of her time scavenging, and uh, she spends time when she's not doing that pretty much um, almost always reading to the English patient and trying to draw him out a little bit, and so you spend a lot of the novel trying to figure out who this guy is, you know, like what happened to him, why he's all uh, burnt up, uh, what he did in the war, how he ended up in this abandoned kind of hospital thing, um, and why Hannah won't leave him. Um, but the book is written in a, you've probably seen the movie. And so you, if you've seen the movie, then you know who he is already, but it's still worth reading the book because it's written this kind of oddly, like it's, there are flashbacks, obviously because memories. Um, and he writes it like it's, uh, they're almost like snippets. Like he writes very, um, poetic flashbacks and it's not a very straightforward kind of narrative. Like, Guernsey, but I think since he liked Guernsey literary, or he's liking Guernsey literary and potato papa society, which is also not traditional because it's epistolary, I think I don't think he'll be bothered by it. Um, and it is very, it's dark and kind and very sad. But there's also like a romance to follow, so it's got a lot of emotional stuff going on. So that's the English Patient by Michael Andachi. All right, my next pick is a book that just like blew up last year. It's called The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, um, and it's about two sisters in Paris. Uh, one of whom, well, okay, I lied. One of them lives in Paris, mm-hmm. and the other one lives in the French countryside with her family. Um, but then uh, the one who lives in the countryside, her husband is sent off to fight, and uh, and the one who lives in Paris gets sent to help out um, on the farm, as it were. And so uh, there's a lot of family dynamics in here um there's a lot of stuff about like you know what how who do you become in these kind of extreme circumstances like what choices do you make uh for yourself for your children for your family um and how do you deal with other people's choices so there's a lot of emotional heft to it and this was like one of the favorites of our contributors last year so it's like roundly you know two thumbs it up (laughs) um and it's new so he maybe is not familiar with it yet uh, relatively new so that is the nightingale by Kristen hannah Okay, my second pick is uh, Empire of the Sun by J.G. Ballard, which I picked because it takes place in the Pacific Theater, which I think is an often neglected area of World War II fiction. Um, So it's semi-autobiographical. The book is about a little boy named Jim who lives in Shanghai in 1941, um, and he lives there with his parents in kind of a... uh, a, a, I can't remember what what they call it, but it's like a neighborhood where foreigners live, um, like an annex kind of. Uh, in Shanghai. And so Pearl Harbor happens, the Japanese invade Shanghai, and Jim is separated from his parents at the beginning of the war. Um, the streets, you know, get are like full of chaos. There's a lot of violence. He's just like a young boy alone by himself looking for his parents. He gets captured by the Japanese and is sent to live in a Japanese concentration camp. Um, he stays there 
and survives for several years on his own, which is, you know, mightily impressive. And then he sees uh, the, the Japanese, he sees that the Japanese are losing, right? Like he knows that, um, like their food is running out, discipline is changed, the soldiers are, are looking kind of panicked. He knows that the end is, to the war is coming. He thinks that probably means he's going to be executed, but, he, you know, he's a child, so he still kind of doesn't understand what that will probably mean for him. And then the Japanese start sending all the people in the camp on a march, like a, like a basically a death march um, out of the area where they're stationed. And then he looks up one day across the bay and sees this bright flash of light, and it's the bomb of Nagasaki. And so he doesn't know what that is, but for some reason is like full, like filled with hope that like that bright light is going to be the thing that saves him. And of course it does end up being the thing that saves him. Um, and it is semi-autobiographical, so it's not, um, like this did happen to J.G. Ballard. I don't know if you, if you've read his other books, Crash and like High Rise and things like that, but, um, he did live in Shanghai at the, the outbreak of the war. The only difference here is that he was with his parents. Like he wasn't separated from his parents when he was a kid. So him and his parents were sent to live in a Japanese uh, POW camp. And he did see, uh, the bomb at Nagasaki go off. Um, so it's a uh, still not not a colonialist narrative because he wasn't there to like colonize. His dad worked in Shanghai, but it's still like the perspective of a, a white person in the Pacific theater. But you know, like there's so few books I think about World War II that don't take place in Europe that are big and famous. Um, and it's a classic, and I think it's still really worth reading, especially since he manages to write from a child's point of view about like all of these horrors and about like a, a, the, the bomb going off. And it's just, it's very impressive, I think. Um, so that's Empire of the Sun by J.G. Ballard, which is actually the first in a series. He like, he follows the character as he goes on to live his life as an adult. Um, so, yeah. All right. My third pick real quick is Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford, which is a beautiful novel. Um, and it's really more about the American experience, the Asian American experience during World War II. Uh, it takes place in Seattle. Um, and at the opening of a book, uh, a man named Henry Lee is, sees that like everybody's gathered around this hotel, which used to be like the sort of gateway to Seattle's Japantown. It's been boarded up forever, but now it has a new owner and the new owner has found boxes of, uh, like, belongings from the Japanese families who were sent to internment camps during World War II, which takes Henry back to his youth uh, during the 1940s um, and his own struggles. He's uh, Chinese-American, and um, he was struggling with that. And then he uh, met and befriended a young Japanese-American named Keiko, who uh, was then sent away to the internment camps. Um, and so, uh, and like, you know, now it's 40 years later, and like, how, what happened to them when they were young? Like, what was it like to be an Asian American during that time? And, like, to be Chinese American, trying to distinguish yourself from Japanese Americans so that you weren't sent to the internment camps, and then knowing people who were sent, um, and all of that, like, really intense stuff that is, again, I say, super relevant right now <laughs> mm -hmm. when we're dealing with this sort of institutionalized Islamophobia, like, and people are talking about internment camps, like, this is the thing that should be a model for stuff, like, let's read some books about it, shall we? And and think Indeed. about, think of it, sit in a corner and think about what we've done. Um, <laughs> so, but it's also 
really moving and beautifully written story, uh, whether or not you want to get into the political aspect of it, although it's like really hard to avoid the politics in this because duh. Um, <laughs> so that is Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford. Okay, I'm done now. We did it. We you did. put in three books and we still uh, like just just over the wire, but time. I'm all right with that. Well, it's fine. Okay, so thank you so much for listening to our show. Please go rate us on iTunes, leave a review to complain about our politics. So you won't be the first. Uh, you can find <laughs> us on social media at I'm Amanda Nelson. Uh, Jen is at Jen IRL, Jen with two N's. And thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. Uh, we will be back next week. Have a good week. Bye.